Our second scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord. I've, uh, I've told this one before, but let me tell you about Julian. Julian was a year older than me in high school. And he was very tough and very cool, and I was totally scared of him. He was about my size, maybe a little bigger, but he was probably one of the hardest hitters on the football team. And he was a cool guy who hung out with the cool kids. He was always around the pretty girls and always hanging out with a popular crowd. He was the equivalent, if you're a little older than me, of a James Dean. If you're about my age, somebody from the movie The Outsiders. If you're younger, I have no idea. A year after college, after college started, I went with a couple of friends of mine to a summer college fellowship that was meeting here in Northern Virginia. And lo and behold, Julian showed up, Bible in hand. It was kind of strange. I'd never seen him in anything Christian, never expected him to show up at anything like that before. We sat through the whole thing, singing songs, hearing a message. And afterwards, he came up to Kevin and Mike and me and said, why didn't you guys tell me? You knew me through high school. Why didn't you tell me about Jesus? Why? Well, I didn't really know him as well as Kevin and Mike did. Yeah, why didn't they tell him about Jesus? I don't I mean, I assumed he'd reject it, and I was afraid of him. It was hard, especially as a teenager, to find my identity so fully in Christ that I didn't care what others thought, and to be so compelled by my calling in Christ that I would hold nothing back to reveal who Jesus was. The series that we have been in over the past few weeks, we're calling The Image of God, Mission of God, a biblical theology of human identity, dignity, calling, and God's purposes for all people. If you look at what we've been looking at over the past few weeks, we started in Genesis, looking at creation's call that we are all have inherent human dignity. We are made in the image of God. And then we moved on for a couple of weeks, looking at God's heart and our calling to the nations to the defenseless, to the outcast, to people of other races, to people who don't look like us, to the orphan, to the widow, to the weak. And we've looked, even as we did last week, at the gospel calling in Galatians that we have an identity of great equality. 
regardless of ethnic or social or gender lines, there is a new creation in Christ as we're looking at today. We're all sinners saved by grace. So we're continuing this whole look at what we are, how we are made in the image of God, and that identity that that gives us, and our calling to fulfill God's purposes in this world. If you're here today still trying to figure out whether Christianity is something you buy into, listen to what we're talking about and decide if that's something you want as your identity and calling. It may not be. And if you are a Christian, the question is, are you living into your identity and calling in Christ? I don't normally do a three-point sermon. It's nor- normally more linear. I try to lose you along the way and see if you can follow. We're going to do the Presbyterian Baptist model of three points. First, reconciled through Christ. Second, new creation in Christ. Third, ambassadors for Christ. All things we find in 2 Corinthians 5. Let me say a prayer for us, and then we'll enter into the passage. God, give us grace to see in you and your Son our identity and our calling, and may we be so moved by your Spirit to live into that, not just today, but in the years to come. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 19, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So the first thing we have is that we are reconciled through Christ. In order to be reconciled, you actually have to be at odds. And what Paul is saying is something that he says throughout his writings. We, by nature, are enemies of God. In Romans 3, he makes it very clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and no one is good, no, not one. The Christian message starts off very negatively. We are all spiritually and eternally dead. Every one of us is alienated from God. Now, the hard part about that sort of language, enemies of God, alienated from God, is that we don't all feel that way. And if I went outside of this room and asked people, do you feel like an alien from God? Most people would say, I don't really know what you're talking about. But we have to remember that in Christianity, when I'm talking about being alienated from God or enemies of God, there's, there's two ways you can be alienated from God. You can do this by being very bad breaking all the rules, living how you want to live, and living as if God doesn't exist. But you can also be alienated from God by being very, very good, following all the rules, and being very religious, and then thinking, God owes me. Or living comparing yourself to others and trying to see if you measure up against them, Whenever we live in this karmic view, we're actually, even in our goodness, trying to be our own Savior and Lord. It's my record, my goodness compared to you, that gets me in. We can be alienated from God by being very bad or very good. But either way, we fall short. No one is good, no, not one. But the good news of Christianity is that it is not about what we do. It is always rather about what God has done for us. 
And what did God do for us? We get it very clearly in verse 21 as we continue thinking about this reconciliation. In verse 21, it says, for our sake, he, God, made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange of the gospel. You know, we often think about Jesus' death, and sometimes it's portrayed very graphically. And we think of Jesus' death, the horrible part, as the humiliation. You're hung naked in front of everyone. You die a public execution, and it is the most extreme way of torture that was known to man back then. Getting beaten beyond recognition, nailed to a cross, dying of suffocation. But Jesus' death was far more than the pain and suffering. The gospel makes it clear that what Jesus experienced on the cross was hell, spiritually. He experienced judgment for our sin. You know, when we talk about hell, often we use language, vivid language Christians have of fire and brimstone and these sorts of things, but other language that fits it, and C.S. Lewis builds on this, is this idea of being apart from God, that each of us on our own wants to be apart from God, to live on our own, and in the end, what will happen is God will say, okay, be on your own forever, and experience what it's like to have the complete absence of God. On the cross, that's what Jesus experienced. He was forsaken. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you gone from me? Why? Because God was counting our sin and the judgment that was, that was due our sin on Christ. He was our substitute. I don't know if you've heard about this, but some coffee shops around America are now doing suspended coffees. Do you know what a suspended coffee is? Sounds funnier than it is. Here's what it is. You go in and order your coffee. You say, yes, I'd like a large coffee, one of the ones with tons of milk and a little bit of chocolate syrup, and they call back. He wants a grande mocha. You know that's going to be $4.60. You start to pull out your money, and they say, oh, no, it was already paid for by the person in front of you in line. Some coffee shops have a line of hundreds of coffees already paid for. Now, you know you're getting something, the coffee, and you owe $4.50, but it was already paid. All you need to do is go and take the coffee that was already paid for. Jesus already paid for you. Another way of understanding this is a, is a story that I've heard and probably told once or twice. It's a legend about a tribe a long time ago up in the mountains. They were pretty remote from everyone else. And they went through a couple of years of drought, so their crops were down. One particularly bad winter, the storehouses became so low that they had to start rationing out food. But after a couple of weeks of rationing, the keeper of the rations came to the tribal chief and said, somebody has been stealing. So the chief put out an edict, whoever is caught stealing will be beaten publicly chained up and for three days have no food and water. Well, for about a week, this worked. No more food was being taken. But then one night, it happened again. The keeper came to the chief and said, Chief, we found the culprit. We caught them red-handed. Chief said, bring the person to me, and tomorrow we are going to beat them publicly. 
and to his dismay, it was his own aged mother who was brought before him. What was he going to do? Word quickly spread around the entire village that it was his mother that had been stealing, and of course everyone knew he was going to let her off. The next day, they brought her out in front of the entire village, ready to rip off her cloak, tie her up, and have her beaten. But of course, they knew this wasn't going to happen. And of course, at the last minute, right as she was about to be tied up, the chief said, stop. And he went over and untied his mother. And he said, tie me up instead. And they beat him because he commanded them to. They said, do not feed me for three days. See, justice needed to be paid in order for the king's word to be true and his honor to be upheld. But because he loved his mother and wanted to show mercy, he took her place. That is what Jesus has done for us. We deserve hell, and he experiences it in our place. We are reconciled through Christ because of what he has done, not what we do. And as a result of that, the second is if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We are new creation in Christ. Verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5 says, If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So the first question is, how do you become in Christ? How do you get in Christy? Well, very simply, you accept what Jesus did, which means you have to admit that you are a sinner, that you owe something, that you broke the law. You have to admit you're sinful. And secondly, very simply, you have to believe that Jesus is your Savior, that His cross paid for your coffee and more. Romans 10, which was our other reading, put it very simply. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, how do you become in Christ? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And then jumping down to verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. With your mouth you confess this is what I believe. Your faith must be public, not just something you've done privately. It must be obvious this is what you believe in, but it also must be in your heart earnest. You can fake all the people you want, but God knows what's in your heart. How do you get in Christ? It's not religiousness. It's not goodness. It's earnest faith. And if your faith is in Christ, you are a new creation. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be a new creation? It's God's view of me and my new spiritual reality and identity because of Christ rather than my view of me or the world's view of me. I actually think 2 Corinthians 5.17 is one of the most powerful verses in the entire Bible because it transforms how I view myself. And I start looking at myself, if I actually believe in verse 17, as somebody who is forgiven, reconciled to God, justified, righteous, and holy. And you know what? I don't actually always look that way. 
And I certainly very rarely feel that way. I don't often feel holy. If you ask people who are close to me, they might see some elements of me that look holy, but I know what's underneath that. And those who are very close to me know that I certainly don't live that way. I may not see or feel and act all the time like I am a holy, righteous child of God. And others may see my hypocrisy and failure. But if I am in Christ, I am a new creation. It is my new identity, my spiritual reality, and how God sees me. Some years ago, I ended up at the hospital with my wife, and we had our first baby. I was scared to touch her because I knew I would break it. But the instant that she was entering the world, you know what I became? I became a father. Now, the funny thing about being a father is you don't always act like one. I don't always feel like I want to be a father. But do you know what I always am? A father. From the time of her birth, I became a father. I could be a completely neglectful father, and I am still a father. Or I can live into the fullness of what it is to be a father and enjoy my fatherhood. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. That is your identity and your reality. Even when you don't feel like it, act like it. The question is whether you will enjoy the fullness of it. And it's why I encourage people to take verse 17 and preach it to yourself all the time and preach it to one another constantly. Tell yourself, I am a new creation in Christ. A new creation. Why do you have to say this again and again? Because deep down in, you know you're still sinful. You struggle with your sin and your doubt, and you don't feel like it. And so you deal with the uncertainty of eternity, of guilt. But here's the way that that new creation exists in you. Now there is a seed of heaven that has been birthed in you that is growing and will one day be heaven. Previously, there was a seed of hell growing in you that would one day be hell. C.S. Lewis puts it very clearly when he says, in each of us, there is something growing which will one day be hell unless you nip it in the bud. When you come to faith in Christ, what God does is He comes and He rips up that root from the bottom of hell, and He plants the seed of heaven in your heart, and the Spirit indwells you, and you begin to grow into something that even as much as you may neglect it will one day be eternity. You are now a different tree altogether. So you remind yourself of that by saying, I am a new creation in Christ. And it's also the words you need to hear in order to fight Satan. I believe that if you are in Christ, Satan cannot steal you. He cannot take you from God. But he can steal your joy and render you useless. And how does he do that? By constant accusations about your identity. You call yourself a Christian? Do you hear the words that just came out of your mouth to your mom? You call yourself a Christian? If people knew the thoughts that went through your head, 
You call yourself a Christian. Why are you so insecure? I am a new creation in Christ, Satan. Get out of here. I may not always look it, but that's how God views me, and it is my new spiritual and eternal destiny. This is absolutely amazing and powerful stuff. In Christ, you are a new creation, a child of God, indwelt by His Spirit, destined for eternity. Go back to that again and again and again. First, we have been reconciled through Christ. We are new creations in Christ. And third, we are now called, because of this identity, to be ambassadors for Christ. Verse 20 of 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What is an ambassador in our modern age? An ambassador is somebody who goes off and sits in another country representing the interests of its home country. In that ancient world, they would send an ambassador, an envoy, an agent, who would go acting on behalf of the one that sent them. Usually somebody with authority sent an ambassador, an agent, to go on and carry out their business. They would go in the power and authority of whoever had sent them. So, the basic story was this. The Roman emperor would send an ambassador to a distant land that they had conquered. And what would that ambassador do? That ambassador would have to leave Rome, leave your home country, and go to the foreign land that you've been sent. And not just go to the foreign land and live as one of those people. It's to go and represent your home country and your king. You carry his message You're representing your home country's ways. So when Paul says you are an ambassador for Christ, that carries all the implications of how we are now called to live. And it begs us to ask the question, whom do I represent in this world? If anybody honestly examined my life, would they know what country I'm coming from? Would they know whose agenda I'm living for? Whose interests I'm most concerned about? Our calling as ambassadors is seen in verse 19 and 20. when he says that God has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. And as ambassadors, God is making his appeal through us be reconciled. We are entrusted with a message called to be the ones through whom God makes His appeal. Be reconciled. You know, I think that many Christians think about the highest calling of the Christian life, the purpose and way your life is supposed to look, is either to gain lots of theological knowledge or to be really holy. Now, neither of those things are bad things, but it's like approaching health by simply trying to prevent the flu. So if you're trying to prevent the flu, you go get a flu vaccine, you do a lot of hand washing, and you definitely avoid sick people or any kids. So it's basically inoculation and avoidance. Many Christians go through life trying to inoculate and avoid. I don't want to be contaminated. I don't want to get sick. 
I don't want to get what they have. It's so much of a refreshing and opposite thing when you see what Jesus did. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus, after calling Levi the tax collector, goes and has dinner at Levi's house with a bunch of Levi's tax collector and sinner friends. And when he was there eating with them, the Pharisees come up and say to the disciples of Jesus, what is your teacher doing? He calls himself a rabbi, but he eats with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus, overhearing this and knowing the motives of their heart, says, look, those who are well have no need of a physician. Those who are sick need a doctor. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I wonder if the things the Pharisees accused Jesus of would be something that you might ever be accused of. Oh, yeah, you, you eat with tax collectors and sinners. Are you sure you're a Christian? What I mean is this. If the challenge was given to you to invite 10 non-church people to your home, could you get them there without them thinking it was absolutely weird? Or on the opposite side, if it would be really easy for you to gather 10 people who don't go to church anywhere to your home, would they at the end of the night know that you're an ambassador for Christ? Or would they think you represent a totally other agenda? Romans 10, 13 to 15 gives us our calling. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? How are the sick going to get well? How are the dead going to be raised? How are the sinners going to be reconciled to God? Unless somebody is sent. You are sent. Consider this your official commissioning. You are now sent. You've heard it. You're sent. You are sent to your street that you live on, to the town where your house or apartment or townhouse dwells, to the office that you go to, the school that you attend. You are sent to your soccer team, to your PTA meeting, to your gym or or Pilates class, or the box, or whatever those things are called. You were sent to your coffee shop. You were sent to your book club. You were sent as an ambassador for Christ everywhere you go. Just as a pause in a slightly different direction to end on, the Christian calling is not simply to try to become more others-focused and more selfless. It's not simply to become more others-focused and selfless, because there are lots of reasons, lots of reasons why you might live for others or be more selfless. And many of those reasons have to do with you. 
For instance, why might you be, uh, tr- try to be a more generous and helpful and hospitable and kind person? Why might you do those things? Because you want to be loved and approved and praised by others. Because you want to be viewed as somebody who is generous. Or why might you be selfless and generous and hospitable? Because it feels good. It also puts you in a superior position. You're always giving to those people who need it. I give so much. I'm a great person. Or because you have a religious and karmic view of God. If He is going to accept you, you better be generous and hospitable and loving. And if not, He's certainly going to get you at some point. You will be judged. Why might you live more selflessly and others-focused? You might do it for many reasons that are really for yourself. For instance, as an example, why might a mom be so devoted and sacrificial to her kids, giving for them constantly, pouring herself out for her kids? There are many reasons she might do it, but some might even be because she wants her kids to love and appreciate her. And their, 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 their response to her is her heaven. Or because she wants all of her peers to realize that she is an amazing mom. Their praise of her is her salvation. Why might you do good things and be selfless and others-focused? You know that nearly every person I've ever met, including myself, is an archivist. We keep records. We're also all, on some level, bookkeepers and accountants. We keep meticulous ledgers. We keep records and ledgers of whatever is most important to us. And if you are constantly giving and hospitable and pouring out your life, you will keep a record of it. I'm always the parent giving rides to other kids. I'm always the person in the office that's complimenting what everyone else is wearing. I'm always the kid at school that's helping others with their homework. I invite everyone over to dinner. I'm always inviting kids to my house for a sleepover. I'm always initiating and serving and pouring out my life for others. Why isn't anybody doing it back to me? You know how it feels when you give and you give and nobody seems to notice? And nobody's repaying you, but you notice. Why? Because you're not really living for others, you're living for yourself. And because you don't really believe the gospel, that everything that Jesus says about you is true. You are fully loved, a child of God. You do not need to seek your identity and your assurance anywhere else but in Christ. What are we called to do? We're called to do what it says in verse 15. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Our calling is to live not just for others, but for Christ. His priorities, His aims, His purposes are your primary calling. And so, yes, you will love others as Christ loved them, but you will also allow God to make His gospel appeal to them through you. You will serve and give to others, but without expecting in return. 
and you will play your whole life to an audience of one. And that audience is not you. Where is the power to live this way? We get it in the very first part of our verse, the love of Christ controls us. Another translation is the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ moves us forward. It is our fuel and our driving force. You see, when the gospel becomes real to you, it has the power to break your false idols, to break the enslavement of fears that you live in, to break yourself from loving yourself only. And through the spirit that indwells you when you come to faith in the gospel, you have the power to begin to love God and to love others in a way you never thought possible. The love of Christ is the power to compel you. But hear this, you're going to fail. You will live for yourself, you will avoid sick people, and you'll be embarrassed by Christ and the gospel. You just will, because you are like me, human and sinful still. But if you admit your sinfulness and you believe in Jesus, be assured, God does not count your trespasses and failures against you anymore. And in Christ, you are a new creation, even if you don't feel like it. Let's pray. God, you call us to be ambassadors for you, to live representing another kingdom and for another's purpose. The only way to do that is to recognize that we are new in Christ, new creations reconciled to you. Give us the grace and the courage to admit the depth of our sin, to fall on the greater depth of your death for us, and to live out our calling and our identity in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.